Welcome to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We will cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Julie Gunderson, at Julie underscore Gund on Twitter. Today, we're going to talk about the important topic of change management and why it matters. We're joined by our VP of Engineering here at PagerDuty, Gautam Prabhu, who's going to talk to us about change management and how we think through it here at PagerDuty. So thank you for being with us. To get us started, how would you describe change management for anyone that's new to a more formalized practice? The framing that I always like to use for change management is what is the best way to get to your goals? So when we put that in like the context of a, of a software organization or, or a software team within a software company, you know, what are our goals? Our goals are, first of all, to run uh, safe, stable infrastructure and product for our customers, but also to improve that over time. And so those are sometimes like conflicting goals where you're like, I want to run something that's just running and you can rely on no matter what, but I also need to change it a lot. And so there is a well sort of, you know, is a well-trod path of a process that you use to balance those goals against each other in a way that gets you the best possible results, keeping the customer in mind. Thank you. So one of the things that we always ask is, what is a myth or a common misconception that you want to debunk when it comes to change management? I have many. <laughs> so the, the first myth that, uh, you know, I want to debunk is that change management is something that is unique to software. So I mentioned, you know, we're a software company and I'm talking about, I'll be talking about change management within, you know, the context of a software organization, but change management is something that's useful everywhere. If you have a sales process, a process for billing, for invoicing, for marketing, all of these things have processes that benefit from someone looking at them and saying, how do we make sure that our processes are best achieving our goals? So the first myth is that change management is something that sits inside purely a software work. It, it doesn't. It's super necessary for software teams, but it's also a, there is an art to it that's even beyond just you know uh, the software part of the equation. I, I think that's one myth. A second myth is that there's one way to do it. There is no one perfect way of doing this. To dive a little bit deeper into that, like you have to take the circumstances that are actually facing you to make the perfect change management process. And if I were to give you know some extremes, you've got a two-person startup that has no product, no customers, and just needs to get stuff done as fast as they possibly can, they will have a very different change management process than, I don't know, someone running Gmail, who basically has hundreds of millions of people who rely on them every single day. So there, there's not one way to do it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an art more than a science. There are some things you can study to say, like, well, how do I approach this problem? But each company will have its own kind of unique way and unique flavor of change management because each company is slightly different in terms of the things it's being asked to do. So really what I, what I find is you need to have some opinions on how have I seen this done well? What are some general principles that I want to be true? But you cannot just say, like, give someone else, well, here's the flow chart that you would follow to get to a perfect change management process. Because you don't know all the variables. It's going to be different from place to place, from company to company, from team to team, and from phase to phase. So the change management process that was present at PagerDuty 
in 2009 when the company started and there were three people, you know, sitting in a room together, it will be very different from where we are today. And where we are today will be very different from where we are, you know, two years in the future. Thank you for that. And I know we talk to a lot of organizations, as you mentioned, different sizes, different verticals, right? I know that, for example, financial services organizations may have very, very strict change management versus, as you mentioned, that startup with two or three people. So let's talk a little bit about how we do it at PagerDuty. How do we approach change management? And if you want to talk about how you know we kind of did it when it was just Alex and, and the other two in a room on folding chairs versus how we do it today, that'd be great. Um, so how does PagerDuty handle this? Having been in that same situation that Alex was in with the folding chairs with my own startup, I can pretty much promise you there was no change management. <laughs> the change management was just get it out however you want to get it as fast as you can in the earliest days. And fortunately for all of our customers, um, that was the right decision then. And it's we've matured way past that now. So when we think about how we approach change management, like like I said, the first thing we have to ask ourselves is what are our goals? And let's put some numbers and some actual like meat to those goals. So the first thing we have to think about is we need to run something stable. Like we are an infrastructure company and some of the biggest names in software that everyone knows rely on us to be part of their, you know, infrastructure and the thing that, you know, as, uh, as Tim Armantor, our SVP of engineering says, we have to be at our best on the days that our customers are at their worst. The first thing we have to say is like, what are, when we say we need to run something stable, what does that mean? And we have numbers. We have SLAs, you know, service level agreements that we have with our customers. And internally, we have what are called SLOs, which are service level objectives, which are even more rigorous. So, you know, if I promise you 99.9% uptime, I better be promising, you know, shooting for much higher than that inside. So that just helps us put a framing on like when we craft a process, what are the numbers that need to stay, you know, stay solid, you know, and how do we know if like if our change management process doesn't let us get to those numbers, it's the wrong process by definition. Now, at the same time, there's another thing you have to look at, which is we do need to change the software. No one buys PagerDuty or really any SaaS software saying, I expect it to stay the same forever. You're buying this software because you expect it to improve over time. And you put out roadmaps of, you know, for customers of here's where we think this is going. So there's this balancing act we have to think about where how do we achieve our roadmap in a predictable way while maintaining this, you know, high SLA that we offer our customers. And now we have to backfit a process to that um, that fits those requirements. That's kind of like the highest level framing. If, If you go down now from the bottom up, PagerDuty has a philosophy of what we call continuous delivery. If you look at maybe a couple of opposite ends of the spectrum, you have on one end a scheduled deployment, meaning here is the day on which we're sending out as many changes as we can at the same time. And a scheduled deployment also generally implies a much longer time frame of planning, meaning we need to plan out what's going to happen in the next three weeks or in some cases three months. And it's all going to hit on this day. And there's benefits and drawbacks to that. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have, you know, total chaos. In the middle, you have something that, you know, has come to be called like continuous integration and continuous delivery. And the kind of mentality you have to have is when someone is writing code, their goal is to get that code out to production in a safe way as fast as possible. Don't wait on other things. Get it out to production. Make sure it's working well in production and then go back to your next task. Rather than work on 10 things, batch them up, have hundreds of other people batch up their 10 things and send out all 2,000 at the same time. 
So we have chosen this philosophy of continuous delivery. And that's for a few reasons. The first thing is, in terms of our ability, when we talk about roadmaps, we can release things on a pretty tight timeframes because we do have this idea of we can send things to production at any time. So sometimes that will be a feature that a customer really needs. It could be a bug fix that a customer really needs, or it could be part of a feature that's building up towards something bigger that's just sitting there kind of hidden. But we can get it out sort of like in little, little chunks and, and get it out fast. So that's one reason we do it is we can get things out to production faster and that makes our customers happier. The second thing is it's kind of counterintuitive. There's some improved reliability you can get by doing what's called the continuous delivery. And the best way to think about it is imagine that you and 500 people have to get together and launch 500 changes at once and something goes wrong. First of all, many things could go wrong because 500 things have changed. Second of all, when you're looking at it, you're, it's hard to say what change caused this problem because there's 500 of them. Sometimes it'll be very obvious. Sometimes it won't. Sometimes it might be two things that if they'd gone out separately, wouldn't have caused a problem, but now they went out together and it's very hard to say like, oh, it's because this changed and this other team made this change, it caused this bug. So when you have a problem like that, what you usually fall back to is a very lengthy deploy process with a very lengthy QA cycle and a lot of gates and checks to basically say like, are we good, are we good, are we good? And then if anything goes wrong, what you'll often do is you'll roll the whole thing back. And so one thing went wrong out of these 500 changes, but because it's so difficult to figure out what went wrong quickly, and you don't want your customers to be experiencing that pain for a long period of time, you're like, okay, everything, everything gets rolled back. All 500 changes. With continuous delivery, you can release something very small. If it's gone wrong, you can roll it back very quickly. Now, that's amazing. And that's one of the things we hear, too, is about being able to roll back quickly. But let me ask you, with all these changes happening at the same time, how do we know that we're in the right environment, the most up-to-date environment? So that's a, that's a really interesting question. And it kind of gets to the phases of how to do continuous delivery as safely as possible. So the first environment that any change should always be made on is a developer's local environment, like their laptop. And there's an expectation that that's the first place that you validate that whatever you've done is running well. Um, and there's many ways to do that. You can, you can test things manually. You can run a suite of automated tests or a subset of a suite of automated tests. But that is the first place you make sure things are going well. Then traditionally what happens is there's a, another environment. Some people will call it the QA environment or the staging environment or the test environment. But that's now I've taken my change that I've made off of my laptop. And I put it somewhere else where I can test it with all of our other systems, kind of as close to what production looks like as possible. And that's also a super important experiment to do because, you know what, your local environment might not have all the most recent changes. And so what you're trying to do is get something as much closer to what production looks like. So now you have a local testing environment, and then you have a staging or QA testing environment. And then the next step is to go to essentially a pre-production environment. And your goal there is at this point, you've done a bunch of tests. You've tested it locally. You've tested it in staging. You've run automated tests. You've run, you know, kind of like tests that run through maybe a, a user journey, like in an automated way. You've had someone review your code. All of these tests are passing, but there's still risks that something could have gone wrong. So now what you do is you go to a stage where some percentage of your customers will experience this change, but it's a small percentage. And you're looking at 
what's happening. You're looking at error rates. You're looking at response times. And if you see something you don't like, you roll it back. And you have affected some customers, but it's a small percentage of them. And it's for a very short period of time. One common term for that, which you know we use at PagerDuty, is canarying. You know, the changes in production, but for a very small subset. The last phase is once you feel comfortable with what you see in this canary environment, because you are running on your production infrastructure at this point, then you release it out to production and everyone's got it. So what I'm hearing is we have the notion of a blast radius. Exactly. You know, and the blast radius will get bigger and bigger. And then ultimately, the end, all of your customers will have it. And we all know it's impossible to say that bugs never make it out all the way to the wild. But our job is to filter out as many as them, of them as we can at these stages that we put in the way beforehand. And then what I also heard you say was we have peer review here. So we don't have major cabs that are looking at the 50,000 lines of code, right? Can you talk a little bit more about how that's worked for us? Yeah, you know, I think peer review is one of those things, which is just general good hygiene for any software company. And it's actually something that we we take really seriously here. So any change that anyone is making to a code base must be reviewed by someone else. We don't have like super strict requirements on like, it must be reviewed by a manager or it must be reviewed by a senior engineer. Like what we ask is put a second set of eyes on it because there's a lot of utility that you get out of that. The first is sometimes you catch just obvious bugs or errors. The second thing is, if there's questions that you have, or sometimes like, you know, design questions, that's a good place to go back and forth with someone where it's almost like, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Let's have a conversation about it with a written record and add people to the conversation as needed. So it's a good place to get some feedback on on designs. And then to go a little bit further, when things go wrong, it is nice to have more than one person who understands what this change was about. Maybe the person who made the change isn't around when the thing goes wrong. Maybe they're a little bit over their head. You know, having someone else that you can pull in and say, there's more than one person who's been involved with this and they're not trying to come up to speed when our customers are suffering pain, uh, the better. So peer review is something that that uh, we take really seriously and any software change that we make goes through that process. It also is a good validation step for have you done your homework getting up to this peer review? Like there's an expectation that all of our tests are passing and that you've written new tests to cover the changes that you've made so that the next set of next person who's changing code is not breaking anything of yours. So peer review is like a really good, just human lens to catch a lot of, uh, you know, kind of low hanging fruit. So then how, uh, or, or what advice would you give to organizations that say, we just can't do that, right? We just have too much regulation. Our, our, our deploys have to be scheduled. We can look at once a quarter, but they want to change that. What would you say, where would you say to start? Yeah, that's a good question. So there are definitely places where due to regulations or just the reality of what they're releasing in history, it's it's hard to just say like, we're going to go to a continuous release. So the first thing I would say is it's not a binary situation. It's not you're on continuous delivery or you're on one year delivery. There's places which have scheduled delivery, you know, which I've worked with before where it's one week instead of one month or instead of three months. So the first thing I would say is presuming that you see the advantages of going to a continuous delivery model um, and you're not bound by strict regulations, the first thing to do is just to try to increase the cadence of those deploys. If you're on three months, ask yourself the question of what would it take to get to two months? And what are the parts of the process which are really necessary? And what are the parts of the process which are just making it longer unnecessarily? So I, I think that's one thing you can do is you can try to bring it down over time. 
it's not the end of the world to batch some things together. Like if, if you batch 500 things together and then you're able to get that down to 10 things, that's still a huge advantage. You know, the problems that I'm talking about reduce in, in scope in terms of the number of things that need to be rolled back, the number of changes that could kind of interact with each other in some unexpected way. So I think that's one way to do it. Second way is a lot of times those long deploy cycles are representing a pipeline of people, not just of code. So it's like, well, developers write code and then hand it off to a QA team who validates code. And then if they don't like it, it comes back. And that cycle is one that's been used by many companies to ship successful software. But it's also something where it's not, it's not the only way to do it. And to get that sort of injection of quality earlier, you can actually embed QA resources within each individual team, as an example. So that process of like assessing quality can happen almost in real time as changes are being developed versus waiting for all of them to be done and then sitting there on a QA team taking 500 changes at once and having to test it like this all has to get tested together. Reducing that cycle time is possible by kind of rethinking the way that you assess quality and the people involved and getting them involved earlier. I think that's one of the general lessons I've learned in software development is the more that you involve people early in the process, the less you end up generating this sort of like series of handoffs, which takes a long time. I, I, I don't know if you've ever had a podcast on just like the premise of agile scrum-like development versus waterfall development. They have pros and cons. They both. I'm not saying one is like the perfect way to do it, but that's kind of the same thing. Like if you want to get to an agile process, it, it means getting people involved at the beginning. I mean, I think that's one of the main things that we talk about with DevOps, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's all these handoffs that you can do in a traditional org from dev to ops and ops out to production. PageDuty's taking a different approach. That's a really good point, Julie. Like we have this idea of build it, ship it, own it. Teams actually have embedded resources who are capable of getting things out from their laptop to production as a team. That sort of embedding of like people who have understanding of how to get things to production in every team lets you do it a lot faster because otherwise you end up with a more traditional sort of team that's like this is the production deploy team and they turn into the take a number team like okay well we'll get to you after we've gotten to these other 10 people well and i would say a lot of that goes back to knowledge sharing and an ultimate trust you have to have a lot of trust in your folks you have to trust that they are doing things in the right order that they're running all of their tests yep ultimately it's gotten pager duty to where we needed to be, we also had the benefit of kind of growing up in this in this DevOps culture as an organization versus a lot of the, the more legacy. Sometimes I'll mention ITIL as a not so nice a phrase when we talk about processes that just maybe don't serve people as much anymore. While there are still some things that make sense for organizations, we're now in the phase and I mean, I think we all saw this during the pandemic, right? People needed to be able to change and to scale and to move fast. And having yep. those super long development life cycles was not going to make organizations successful. And I think a lot of organizations came to that conclusion. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, just thinking back to earlier roles that I've had, you often, when you're running a project, you ask yourself, what's the longest pull? Like, what is the longest thing here? And then you set your process based on like, well, what takes the longest? And there were jobs where sometimes that longest pull was someone's got to drive down to the hosting place, plug in machines. And there's like a real sort of, you know, human cost of delay that's introduced in that. 
And then even in, in a slightly more modern version, it's like, well, we've got to call a hosting provider and get compute spun up. So we're going to base everything around that. But we're now in this more modern world where it's like you have these cloud providers, you can spin up commute, compute very quickly. So the processes have to evolve for that um, because probably what they were anchored in is not true as much anymore where there's like this huge upfront cost of spinning up infrastructure. And that's a lot of what I think has uh, kind of pushed this this kind of DevOps revolution that, like you said, PageDuty has been part of because we've been cloud native from day one. Well, as we're running out of time, I want to make sure that we get to the two questions that we ask every guest on this show. And I think you actually kind of already addressed the first one, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's the one thing you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? I, I think the thing that's most important is when you're running software in production, you need to have a very, very healthy system for understanding what has changed and a very, very quick system for correcting errors. Like those two things, if you have those two things, you are able to run software in production responsibly. If you can figure out what changed and if something changed that you don't like, undo that as quickly as possible, you can run a, a service that is giving your customers what they need. And so it's not really as much about the journey for how it gets out there, but it's once it's out there, do you know what to do with it responsibly? Excellent. And then is there anything about running software in production that you're glad I did not ask you about? You know, my, my first boss at my first job used to say something that was, I think, mostly a joke, but it's proven more and more true, which is like, the world is our test bed. Like, ultimately, when software gets sufficiently complicated, you have these gates, you have these checks, you have these balances, but there is no test for your software, like having it out in production in all of your customers' hands. It has the biggest blast radius, but it's also the most in-depth test you can do. So all software on earth that's being released ultimately is being tested by the customers in the end. Gautam, thank you. That is actually fantastic. And I want to thank everybody for listening to us today. And this is Julie Gunderson wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com and you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's at pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, uneventful days are beautiful days.